Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. These are courtesy of an 80-something-year-old Jewish woman. What did the Venus de Milo's mother say to her? You could pick up a phone and call. Uh, what did Moses say when he got to Mount Sinai? This is where we'll build the hospital. What did Vincent Van Gogh's wife say? Everything I say goes in one ear. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of food, humor, and culture to fuel your weekend gatherings. You just got a joke or three from Gary Steingart, author of the new memoir, Little Failure. Yeah. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from him later. Plus, we speak with Golden Globe-nominated actress Lupita Nyong'o about her performance in 12 Years a Slave. Also coming up, author Chang Ray Lee discusses dystopias, and we steal ourselves for the next big food town. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Frank Thomas, Greg Maddox, and Tom Glavin will be inducted to Cooperstown. Governor Chris Christie has apologized, saying he was embarrassed by the actions of his aides. The bitter weather is the result of the ominous-sounding polar vortex. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is the executive editor at the food culture magazine Modern Farmer. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about smart PJs. <laughs> So pajamas with a flap on the back. <laughs> no. All pajamas are pretty smart that so way. So smart pajamas are like regular pajamas, except they're a special kind of polka-dotted pajama where each polka dot is, has its own QR code. Those are the codes that you scan with like a, a smartphone. Exactly. And I must say also smart pajamas are for children. They come in only children's sizes. <laughs> That's too bad. I know, um, why, why do you need to scan children? This is creepy. What, so what, the do, idea Do you find out how is, much they would cost on the black market? Or? <laughs> <laughs> the idea is you buy your kids these smart PJs and when you tuck them into bed and they want to be read a story, you take your phone and you simply scan one of the 47 polka dots and each polka dot links back to a bedtime story. Which then plays on the phone. That then plays on the phone. So the phone reads your kid a story instead of you. Yeah, you just, instead of like using your voice and picking up a book, no, no, you just put the phone <laughs> near your kid's head and they get a story. What is wrong with America? <laughs> I don't think Maurice Sendek ever dreamt that he would be a dot on some kid's tuchus. But there you have it. Thanks, Modern World. It's better than a Newbery Award. So what happens, like, will a stain <laughs> cause a different book to emerge? Like, are you, are you like one grape jelly stain away from Fifty Shades of Grey coming, oh, no. out of, oh my God. coming out of your kid's elbow? Brendan, that is a very good point. I think the founder of Smart PJs will have a lot to answer for if that's the case. This is a nightmare on so many levels. Rayhan Armansi, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, and then we have a bartender dream up the perfect cocktail to accompany it. It is our semi-world-famous history lesson with booze. First, the history. Right around this time, back in 1942, New York City outlawed a terrible scourge on society. Alas, it was not parking tickets. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the early 40s, New York was apparently a really safe place. Because what city officials feared most was pinball. Well, that's probably an overstatement, but officials did consider pinball a shady game of chance. They lumped it in with other noisy gizmos you dropped coins into, like slot machines. Cops took to raiding pinball parlors, and in January 1942, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia straight up banned them. Soon, other big cities did too. 
Not that you couldn't still get a pinball fix. Even cities with bans let you have a machine in your own home. And some let you install machines in your business, too. If they gave out an occasional free ball. But in New York, pinball remained a sort of shadowy underground craze. That is, until May 1976. That's when a trade group called the Music and Amusement Association went to city council to get the ban overturned. To do it, they had to prove pinball wasn't a game of chance. So they called in a ringer, Roger Sharp. Sharp had written about the game in GQ and the New York Times, and he was also a killer pinball player. If he could call a pinball shot in advance and then make it, clearly, this was a game of skill. So a pinball machine was set up in a Manhattan courtroom. Sharp announced he'd make a shot straight up the middle lane. And he did it, scoring the political equivalent of multi-ball. The council overturned the ban on the spot, arguably ushering in one of the golden ages of pinball. By the way, Sharp later said that historic shot was pure luck. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to serve along with it. I am at the Fifth Estate, a bar in Brooklyn that's known for its pinball, and I'm joined by its owner, Peter Letterman. My pleasure. Why did you decide to put pinball in your bar? It is a more nostalgic and vintage way of bringing in some fun games and entertainment, and little I know how competitive our uh, customers would eventually become with it. Pretty tense around the pinball machines here? Things get very heated. Last night, actually, someone stormed out of the bar. So was that around the, uh, the Star Trek machine or the Elvira machine? Actually, it was around the Star Trek machine and the Lord of the Rings machine. So you should never miss sci-fi nerds, pinball, and alcohol. That's a really toxic combination. Really dangerous combination. <laughs> All right. You heard the history. What drink did it inspire you to make? Well, I wanted to have some type of pinball in the drink. So I started out by scooping out melon balls of honeydew. They're exactly pinball size. I actually took the time to try to find the exact right melon scooper. <laughs> Very cool. All right. So, And they are hanging out in some sort of liquid. They're hanging out in absinthe. And we wanted to include the absinthe because it was also, you know, under its own prohibition and scrutiny in the United States until recently, actually. What are you going to do next? I'm actually going to take those balls out of the absinthe and I'm going to roll them in sugar so they will sparkle and glitter just like a chrome pinball. Kind of looks like a, like, a, like a donut hole. It looks a lot like a donut hole. And then I'm going to, in a separate glass, I like to use a wide mouth champagne flute. I'm going to put a small amount of uh, limoncello. That's... Limoncello is an, an Italian liqueur with kind of a lemon edge. Yeah, and I wanted something a little sour to sort of represent the sourness of something being banned for so long. <laughs> All right. Then I topped that off with a nice Prosecco. All right, well, let's drop the ball in there. And it, and it fizzes up a little bit. I'm going to use my hand, God's flippers. That's a great term for your hand. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a sip of the drink. When I take a sip, the melon ball kind of bumps my lips. And then at the end, you can finally eat the ball. You know, it can go down the, the hole. <laughs> Enrico, check this out. There's a pinball historian named Seth Porges. Okay. And his theory is LaGuardia's anti-pinball obsession yes. was due to his height. LaGuardia what? was about 5'2", and the average <laughs> pinball machine is 5'10". So, so he felt vulnerable? <laughs> exactly. He wasn't comfortable. I guess he was more of a mini-golf dude or something. Wow. I wonder if he also banned basketball. That's the question. We'll have to look that up. Folks, uh, you can find a recipe and a photo of the pinball cocktail at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is novelist Chang Ray Lee. The New Yorker named him one of 20 writers for the 21st century, and his novel The Surrendered was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His latest is called On Such a Full Sea. Here he is to tell us about it and his list. I'm Chang Ray Lee. My book is set in the former Baltimore 150 years from now. And Baltimore is quite different. It's a labor colony filled with workers who are of Chinese descent brought over to produce fishes and vegetables for an elite charter class, partly because this world that they live in is pretty much poisoned beyond reckoning. I should note that On Such a Full Sea is also a love story. And though bleak, I hope, contains a hidden beauty in a world that's gone wrong. So here's my list of three other dystopias that I think are bleak, but still quite beautiful. A new life awaits you in the off-world colony. The first film would have to be Blade Runner. Ridley Scott directed it, 1982. I've watched the movie probably 10 to 15 times. The lead investigator, Harrison Ford, of course, sets out to track and destroy wayward androids and the strange city that's dripping with dark liquids and neon lights. What makes it so cool is that it feels absolutely like a logical extension of all the things that we know today. You know, the ubiquitous ads, the sense of mobility and flight. And then, of course, the idea that what's human will be pushed forward and maybe backwards in certain ways so that we're never quite sure who we are and who, quote-unquote, they are. You think I'm a replicant, don't you? Look, it's me with my mother. Yeah? You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Watched her build a web all summer? Then one day there's a big egg in it? And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Implants. Those aren't your memories, they're somebody else's. All dystopian stories originate in what we fear now. It finds its expression in that future landscape. The second film is a movie by Lars von Trier called Melancholia. That came out a couple of years ago. Basically, this rogue planet called Melancholia is on a collision course with Earth. But what's cool about this story is that, again, like all dystopic visions, it's really about a current anxiety. It's a very private one. It's about depression. I smile and I smile and I smile. You're lying to all of us. It's not just that the world is ending. It's that there's been some desolation inside the psyches of these people. And therein are the worlds that are really colliding and being destroyed. What's going on, Justine? I'm trudging through this gray woolly yarn. It's really heavy to drag along. In Melancholia, the character's concern is this feeling like she doesn't belong in this world. I think a lot of depressives feel that way. They have a dystopic sensibility and perspective. A lot of people do who aren't quote-unquote normal or of the mainstream. I've always held that Immigrant novels can be read as dystopic novels. They describe what's here, but the what's here for those particular newcomers is like entering a strange and brave new world. Last but not least is a short story by Jack London, a very famous one called To Build a Fire. I don't know if you remember this story from seventh grade or eighth grade, but it's a fantastic story about a lone trekker trying to get back to the camp where his fellow trappers are. 
the problem, of course, is that it's very, very cold. The temperature starts to plummet, 60 below and 75 below. We're given all his desperate attempts to light a fire. The first fire, it gets him warm, but then it's suddenly put out. He begins to realize that he's got to light this other one, and he can't quite do it. What I love about this story is that it feels as if we're watching him on some distant planet trying to simply survive. But the thing about it is, it's our planet, and we realize how close we are to life and death. I'm actually a fairly sunny person. I don't walk around the streets looking for, um, you know, all the potential ways in which we might find our demise. But I think in my dreams and at my writing desk, all those anxieties that I've been trying to ignore come back to me. And I think that's what focuses me sometimes. It wakes me up. It makes me feel, in a strange way, alive to think about all that menace that our landscape is full of. The guest list from Chang Ray Lee, his novel On Such a Full Sea, is out now. And Brendan, Jack London's world weirdly doesn't sound too different from the polar vortex. <laughs> I frighteningly. know. Now I feel like I have to carry matches everywhere. I think you, that would be wise. <laughs> All right, folks, coming up, author Gary Steingart is here to tell a super sad true love story. It's also funny. It is. And 12 Years a Slave star Lupita Nyong'o makes a call to who else? Ghostbusters. We'll explain when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, author Gary Steingart tells us how he managed to have a worse election night than Michael Dukakis. <laughs> but first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's Kenyan actress Lupita Nyong'o. She made her film debut last year in the drama 12 Years a Slave, for which she earned rave reviews and is up for a Golden Globe Award. In the movie, Nyango plays Patsy, a young slave whose master becomes obsessed with her. Here's a clip in which he's preparing to punish Patsy for leaving the plantation to find soap. I went to Master Shaw's plantation. <sighs> you admit it? Yes. Freely. And you know why. I got this from Mistress Shaw. Soap to clean with. I stink so much I make myself gag. Five hundred pounds of cotton. Day in, day out, more than any man here. And for that, I will be clean. That's all I ask. When I met with Lupita, we began by talking about her origins, starting with her name. It's the diminutive of the name Guadalupe. Okay. And Guadalupe is a place in Mexico. I know you were born in Mexico, but were yeah. you born in Guadalupe? No, I was not. I was born in Mexico City. But in my parents chose that name in particular because in our language... It made some sense as well. Uh, I, we're from the Luo ethnic group, and to Luo means to follow, and my father's name is Peter. So they thought it would be smart to call me Lupita because I followed my father Aww. to Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Your father is a, a Kenyan, a prominent Kenyan politician. You didn't follow him in his career, though. No, I didn't, but he actually was an actor when he was in school. So. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm kind of sort of still following in his footsteps. He's living vicariously through me right now. <laughs> you were cast in the part of Patsy right as you finished Yale Drama School. Mm -hmm. Because that transition to a major movie role was so quick, mm -hmm. uh, it made me curious, how did your education prepare you for this role? There was no way that I could have done Patsy without having gone to Yale. Because at Yale, I learned so much about myself and about my instrument. And mm. it taught me how to 
do the athletics of the heart you have to do as an actor yeah. and so I, I learned very technical skills and how to how to put myself in someone else's shoes and to do so really like truthfully believing in the imaginary circumstances what didn't it prepare you for well, for one thing, when in the last year, the last year at Yale is all about preparing you for the industry. And so there was a lot of emphasis on how it was going to be a long trajectory, probably a long trajectory. So it was. we learned a lot about keeping the faith and just continuing to believe in yourself even when the industry doesn't. Yeah. And so the thing they didn't prepare me for was um, for getting such a big role Right out uh, of the gate. Right out of the <laughs> gate. <laughs> yeah. And 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 uh, <laughs> that was bizarre. And I, there's no way that they could have prepared me for that. It's interesting you said the athletics of the heart. I mean, this film is very intense. Mm-hmm. And uh, leaving the film, I felt shaken. I saw it several weeks ago in preparation for this interview, and I haven't stopped thinking about it. And you are in some of the most intense scenes in, in, in this film. Your character is repeatedly whipped, beaten, assaulted. And, and this must exact a toll on you as, as an actor. Yeah. How did you prepare yourself for and then come down from, from those scenes in particular? For me, the fact that Patsy was a real person was always very grounding because she actually went through those atrocities and I had the privilege of going through them in an imaginary world with phenomenal artists. So mm. just remembering that was was enough to just make it practical, you know, that I couldn't sentimentalize her pain because she didn't have that luxury either. Did you have any hesitation about accepting this role? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Absolutely not. No, no, no. I didn't have any hesitation in accepting it because, you know, when I was getting ready to leave school, I was just looking for a job, you know. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea what the future held. And then this thing came right off the bat. And it was with such incredible, incredible artists. And uh, no, I didn't hesitate taking the job, but I did hesitate after that, <laughs> yeah. where I was like, oh, I, I did, you know, I definitely went through a moment where I was like, do I have what it takes to do this justice? But then at that moment, you remember that Steve McQueen surely knows what he's doing. So mm. when I didn't have the confidence, I had the confidence in him. <laughs> yeah, it almost must be a little daunting now looking ahead. I'm sure you have lots of opportunities and yet... You were really blessed yes. <laughs> with this first step. I mean, <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah. I mean, how do you plot? How do you plot your future? You know. <laughs> you know, Sarah Paulson said to me, "You better be prepared to do at least ten bad films before another good one comes along." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> roles like this and films like this don't come around all the time. No, they don't, and I don't. I'm not going to kid myself in thinking that my career will always look like Steve McQueen. <laughs> yeah. But um, I want to do different things. I, I love fantasy. I'd love a hand at that. I love. I would love to do a comedy as well, mm. you know, and just um, have an eclectic career. So you know, if Ghostbusters Five offers an opportunity, who knows? Maybe you'll, <laughs> you'll you'll take a chance. It's fantasy, and you know, you've already had this great artistic triumph. So <laughs> who are you gonna call Ghostbusters? That's, I can't wait to see it. All right. Well, look, we have two standard questions that we ask. Uh, our guests. Mm-hmm. And and the first question is, and, and you're pretty new at this, but you've been promoting this film for a while. Mm-hmm. What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Uh, the question about 
as a foreigner, how did you mm. do this role? It's tiring because uh, as an actor, that's my job. And if all I could do was to play middle class Kenyans, my career would be very short. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So our yeah. second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be something about yourself that you mm. haven't revealed in interviews before or just kind of an interesting fact about the world. Well, I just heard this from Forrest Whitaker. Actually, he said this to me, that if ever you're feeling low, say the word bubble. Bubble. And it'll bring a smile on your face. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Were you feeling low when he gave you this? I think we were talking about the films we're in and and how sad it can make you. You know, sometimes it makes me sad when when I have to talk about Patsy because I I have to recall that pain, you know. And so he said, just say the word bubble and it will bring a smile on your face. And I said to him, that's not true. And he said, try it. And I tried it and I smiled. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It does kind of work. Bubble. I know another word that sounds like bubble Mm -hmm. that also will make you smile so Uh I can leave you with it and you can take it if you Mm -hmm. need it. Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters 4. (laughs) (laughs) See? Yes. So, Rico, now we know saying bubble fights depression. Yes, it's lovely. A few months ago, actress Julia Stiles taught us that saying prune makes your face look better in photos. Oh, that's right. I say we publish a book of all these practical words and then say the words cash bonanza. (laughs) Hey, the word bonanza makes me happy as well, apparently. See, there's our final chapter. (laughs) Writing itself. Eavesdrop. Gary Steingart's comedic novels Absurdistan and Super Sad True Love Story made him one of the most acclaimed writers of the decade. His new memoir recalls his childhood in the former Soviet Union and what followed. Today, we overhear an excerpt. Hi, I'm Gary Steingart. I'm 41 in Russian years, which is about 73 in American years. So I figure before I die, I, I should write a memoir. And this one's called Little Failure, which was my mother's nickname for me growing up, uh, Little Failure. We came here in 1979, right before Ronald Reagan took office and introduced the term evil empire. So growing up, I was constantly taunted in school for being a communist or a Russian. There were all those movies back then, Red Gerbil, Red Hamster, Red Dawn. I mean, it was a lot of red stuff out there. And I was the gerbil. I was the hamster. I was the dawn. But instead of making me stand up for the place from which I had emigrated, I I just went the other way and became even more staunchly conservative. I grew up subscribing to the National Review. I was almost physically attracted to Margaret Thatcher. All of that conspired to lead to the section I'm about to read today, the section where I lost my love for Reagan and Thatcher and even George Herbert Walker Bush. On election day 1988, I come to the Marriott Marquis Ballroom thinking, this is the day, the day I will finally get laid. I have volunteered for George Bush Sr.'s scorched-earth presidential campaign against the hapless Michael Dukakis, laughing along with Bush's racist, hysterical Willie Horton commercials and all they imply about the liberal Massachusetts Greek. Yes, tonight is a special night. It's the night I'm to meet a Republican girl from a clean, white home. Her name will be Jane. Jane Carruthers, let's say. 
Hi, Jane. I'm Gary Steingart from Little Neck. My family owns a colonial worth $280,000. I'm the brains behind the Commodore 64 program called the Family Real Estate Transaction Calculator. I go to Stuyvesant High School where my grades aren't so great, but I hope to get into the Honors College at the University of Michigan. I guess tonight is going to be curtains for the governor of Taxachusetts. <laughs> I enter the ballroom, a dark, gap-toothed immigrant wearing sweat socks and brown penny loafers and my special and only suit, a highly flammable polyester number. I navigate the room filled with sparkling Anglos clutching single malts without a word said in my direction, without a pair of happy blue eyes reflecting the gray sheen of my crisp nylon tie. As George Herbert Walker Bush racks up state after state on the big screen above us, as cheers and laughter circulate around the massively hideous ballroom, I stand alone in a corner biting down on my plastic cup filled with ginger ale until a pair of teenage blonde lovelies, the girls I have been waiting for all my life, finally approach with needy smiles on their faces, one of them beckoning me to come hither with her hand. I'm so excited I somehow fail to see myself for what I am a short teenage boy trapped inside a shiny gunmetal jacket, carrying about a mop of the darkest hair in the room, darker even than Michael Dukakis's Hellenic do. Which one will be my Jane? Which one will trace the W of my weak chin with her pewter fingers? Which one will take me on her boat and introduce me to the millionaire and his wife? You know something, Daddy? Gary survived communist Russia just so he could join the GOP. I think that's very courageous, son. Would you like to throw the old pigskin around with me and Jack Kemp after cocktails? Just leave your topsiders in the mudroom. Hey, one of the lovelies says. Me, debonair, unconcerned. Hey. So, I'll have a rum and coke, just a splash of ice and a lime. Mandy, you said no ice, right? She'll have a Diet Coke, lime, no ice. I have been mistaken for the waiter. Gary Steingart reading from his memoir, Little Failure. It came out this week, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from First Generation American Public Media. And now, time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic, Today, the topic is one of the most infamous moments in sports history, the 1994 attack on ice skater Nancy Kerrigan, as plotted by the husband and bodyguard of Kerrigan's competitor, Tanya Harding, and possibly by Harding herself. And our teacher is Nanette Burstein. She is the Oscar-nominated director of many features and documentaries, including On the Ropes and The Kid Stays in the Picture. Her latest is an ESPN documentary about the Harding-Kerrigan fiasco called The Price of Gold. And Nanette, welcome. Thanks for having me. So this is a story almost everyone has at least heard of, but maybe for younger listeners. Can you just briefly tell us about the incident itself? What happened to Kerrigan? Well, Nancy Kerrigan was going to compete in the national championships. And as she came off the ice uh, after a practice session... Some unknown assailant came out of nowhere and whacked her in the knee and ran off. The video of this went as viral as it could be in a pre-internet age, I guess. Yeah, it was, it was captured. I mean, that was the, that was one of the reasons it became such a big story, because you actually had her the, the moment afterwards screaming why and crying, and it was so shocking. 
And this came at a time where there was 24-hour news programs, and they had to fill the air. And the media just played this top of the hour every single day. And what was, you know, this was the first tabloid story that became part of the mainstream media. I mean, you had the New York Times covering it, along with the National Enquirer, along with CNN. People ate it up. Yeah, and the story just got wilder. It was later revealed that Tonya Harding's husband, Jeff Galuli, and uh, her bodyguard had sort of plotted to hire these guys, to a couple of guys to do this to Kerrigan. I'd like to focus on elements of the story I think would surprise even people who watched it all play out on TV, though. Yes. First of all, this film is surprisingly sympathetic, to a point, I would say, towards Tanya Harding, who many people, as she says herself in the film, actually remember her striking Kerrigan, which is not the case. (laughs) Why is she deserving of any sympathy? Well, Tanya had an incredibly tough upbringing. Not only very poor, but she had an incredibly abusive mother, verbally, physically. And then she marries uh, this guy to get away from her mom, who also beats her. Hmm. So your heart goes out to her in that way. Now... As you said, there's empathy to a point because I think the film is very much on the fence of whether or not she actually was involved in the planning of this or not. Of course. But in a way, you could argue it's not just her mom who's abusive. The sport itself, I was surprised to find, is this kind of restrictive conservative. It's almost like like a pre-feminist attitude that the powers that be in that sport had at the time. Yes. And they really seemed to have it out for her, who is not the kind of ice princess they wanted representing the sport. Yeah, I mean, ice skating is a very odd sport. Part of it is athleticism. But the other 50% of your score is, quote-unquote, artistry. You know, being judged on your hair and your outfit and your music and just if they like your style. Yeah. Tanya was a, a tomboy who would not play the Ice Princess game. She was incapable of it. So despite her prodigious talent, I mean, just her athleticism in the sport was unparalleled at the time, mm-hmm. she could not always get the marks she deserved because she didn't have the right outfit. She didn't have the right poise. And they didn't like her image. And you, and there's no other sport like that. I mean, even gymnastics, it's not what you wear. You know, it's just about being able to do the jumps. And ironically, this, this attack on Kerrigan, on Tanya's behalf, kind of spurred interest in that sport. Yeah, that's the irony, is that people were so captivated by this story. Ice skating became hugely popular afterwards. And it actually started airing on the networks. They started doing all these professional shows on Fox and all these ice skaters, including Nancy, got paid a ton of money. But Tanya was banned from the sport. So she made it popular but could not cash in at all. Of course. still, And, and of course, none of this really excuses the crime, as you said. But I, I didn't realize that Harding never actually was convicted of plotting the crime, just of trying to cover it up later. You know, the only time your voice is heard is when you ask her if she had anything to do with it. And she says she absolutely doesn't. I have to ask what you think. Yeah. I mean, I cannot say with absolute certainty that Tanya knew about it beforehand because there is no hard evidence. My hunch is that she probably I mean, I'm sure that she it seems so incredibly unlikely that, you know, her husband kept this from her and just did this on his own. Well, let me finally ask you, in researching the story that almost everyone knows, what about it most surprised you? You know, I, one, didn't understand how tough Tanya's upbringing was. And there was a lot of empathy that I one could have for her. Two, I didn't know how quickly 
they found the perpetrators and how dumb it was how they found them, that the guy who helped plan it told all of his friends beforehand that he was planning to do this. And if he had kept his mouth shut, they would have never, ever gotten caught. I mean, that was sort of shocking to me. Like, what was this guy thinking? Sean Eckhart, who was the bodyguard. It was insane. Yeah. this is a, It's like a Coen Brothers movie waiting to happen. <laughs> it is. It's like Brother Where Art Thou characters. <laughs> Nanette Burstein, her documentary The Price of Gold airs on ESPN Thursday night. And again, if you think you know all about this incident because you watched it play out on TV, this movie will prove that you do not which I guess is in some ways the point. That's right. Don't ever assume you get the whole story from the media. Exactly. Except when you're listening to our show. That's right. Like, for instance, you can trust us when we say we're going to take a quick break (laughs) and that coming up, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post will tell us how to split a check. When the dinner party download continues. So he says. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. Coming up, first the Pittsburgh Pirates, now the Pittsburgh food scene is on the rise. I was like, holy we have a scene. And even Pittsburghers are a little amazed. True. And we hear a new track from the man Courtney Love once called the Grace Kelly of Indie Rock. But first, let's learn some etiquette. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. Usually we have them answered by plain old celebrities, but once a month they're answered by celebrities of etiquette, namely Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They're the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself and co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Lizzie and Dan, welcome. Thank you. As always, it's good to be with you. It's been a while. It's been a while. And Lizzie, since we last saw you, a new book came out, Emily Post's Wedding Etiquette, 6th edition. Yes. That you had a hand in. So what's the number one update from the first edition? Like, what's a modern wedding etiquette dilemma. I mean, Mm. actually, what was huge that happened while we were in the middle of editing this book was that gay marriage became legal. Oh, yeah. We've always talked about civil unions before, but now... And so what kind of questions does that bring up? Like, uh, Yeah, what's the biggest faux pas? Truthfully, there's not a huge difference. Mostly, I think people are like, oh, who's the bridal party then? And you're like, really? The bridal party for a long time has been able to be whoever you want it to be, honor attendance, which is where Mm. you have a man on the bride's side or a woman on the groom's side have been around for a while. So yeah. okay. it's kind of it's kind of like there's nothing actually that yeah. new about it. But you have more people leaping for the bouquet, which could be dangerous, right? <laughs> it's more of a slam because dance. now both yes. men and women. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, it, more, more of the questions, it sounds like, will come from people attending these weddings than the people having them. I think so. Do I address Mr. and Mr. whose name goes first? Mm. You know, that sort of thing. Whose family host? Is, Is it, it okay if Mr. Mr. plays? at the wedding which is always no right (laughs) i think that's right let us let's go straight to our listeners question shall we uh this is from julian manchester new hampshire this is kind of a a quintessential kind of post-holiday question i think i can't live with the guilt writes julie i didn't get gifts for some who gave them to me is there a proper preferably cool way to give a late gift i know i should have given at the proper time Call it a New Year's gift, perhaps. Send a great thank you gift. There's no rule that says gift giving has to be reciprocal. So I say, oh, I like that. personally, I say ditch the guilt. Sleep easy. Mm, yeah. Really? <laughs> and maybe put these people on your list for next year or have them over for dinner soon, that sort of a thing. But really, you're saying that it doesn't have to be reciprocal. I mean, obviously, that's a nice way to think about it. Yeah. And that's how we all believe it should be. But it, it is. Is it really how it plays out? Yeah. I mean, people are, pro- are going to remember. Do they? I mean, I don't really remember. I know I gave gifts to a few 
of my friends and I didn't get them in return, but I don't dwell on it. Well, so if we <laughs> accept the premise, though, if we th that you really do feel bad, it isn't ever too late. You can always send a true. gift late. You, if someone gives you we'll something that it inspires some generosity in yourself or reminds you that you had really intended to do this, you apologize if you feel the need and reply when you can. But truthfully, I think the person is going to look at the gift and just think, dude, I really wasn't looking for you to have to go out and get me something. Yeah, sure. they might feel guilty. It see? change it changes the focus of what the original gift was, and it turns it into this thing about obligation when there really wasn't any there. All right. See, Alex, so there you go. You don't have to give gifts to Lizzie and Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Just take. Or if you do, don't expect one back. Yeah, if you do, That's don't right. expect one back. Isn't that okay. the lesson? It's a guilt-free 2014, everybody. I like it. All right, let's move on. Our next question right. comes from Monica in Los Angeles, and Monica writes... If a guest gets a parking ticket at your house because they didn't see the street cleaning sign and you didn't think to bring it up, should you offer to pay half? Mm. That's a good one. <laughs> 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 Is it? <laughs> what? No. Clearly, you guys don't live in Los Angeles where this is an issue. I'm but I do. We actually do live in a city that has a lot of parking bans because of all the weather that we get. But no, man, if you can't read the signs, it's your own fault. I don't know, Dan, what do you think? You used to live in L.A. I, I don't understand. Is there no valet? Or <laughs> There's a true L.A. Oh. speaking right there. It is. I, I would tell the host to, to take note that it's definitely a really considerate thing. If you know parking is tricky at your place or it's a particular night where there's likely to be a weather ban for some reason. Let people know it is it is a good idea. This is where my evil brain kicks in and I'm like, if the guest is asking for you to pay half the ticket, don't. But if the guest <laughs> just got the ticket and you feel really bad, then you should pay for the ticket. You're saying it's on them. Right. It's mainly on them. I think it's mostly the driver's responsibility. All yeah. right. All right. There you go, yeah. Monica. Here is something from Michaela in Seattle, Washington. Michaela writes, how do you respond to someone who is obviously and repeatedly fishing for compliments, especially <laughs> in a work setting where people don't need their egos inflated any further? <laughs> I just wrote a new book. I don't know. Did anybody see my new book? <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Oh, oh yes, How thank impressive. you. You just keep writing these so books. Much. Probably the best God, wedding book. So um, you know, Lizzie, it would be rude of me to compliment you about your book. <laughs> Dan, you were going to say something? So, um, give, give them the truth. If someone's fishing for compliments, you can tell <laughs> them what them you the really truth. think. And there might be a compliment in there. It might be... Oh, um, I like that. But if someone's asking for your opinion, that's when you get to give it. Yeah. <laughs> fishing for a compliment, you might not get one. You're not that pretty. <laughs> or maybe you just say what Daniel said and you just say to them, do you really want my opinion? Yeah, there you And are. then they might back off. Probably not. And what you don't <laughs> want to do is do that patronizing thing where like you pat their head and go, oh, yes, you're so wonderful. OK, because mm. I really can't stand that. That was a really good suggestion, or, Lizzie. Wow, awesome really job. That was a great solution. <laughs> so we have another question. This one comes from Marianne in Phoenix. Marianne writes, we have a table for six at a restaurant. The sixth person comes very late to the family style dinner. He eats the, quote, leftovers of the food we didn't want to finish. The check arrives. Do we add him to the check or not? Hmm. Okay, I, like I just want to be clear. Family-style dinner, meaning you guys ordered five or six dishes and shared them, and he's eating off of those dishes? That's, that's what it sounds like. Okay. Yeah. Yes, but he that's showed up very like late. and he's, So it's like the leftovers. They've already kind of, yeah. he's picking over the remains. So we so. need a tipping calculator that prorates time yeah. <laughs> and equates it against the and, cost of the food. But you also have to take into account that if he's picking at the leftovers, maybe he didn't get any beef in the 
beef stir fry dish that they. That's order. right. It's just onions. That's it all. It was left. just onions and baby corn. We're going down the rabbit hole. This gets deeper and this deeper. Does. You guys have to work this out for us. That's why you're here. Yeah. I mean, if literally all he got is like a piece of broccoli and a crust of bread, I think I probably <laughs> would speak up and say, you know, Larry really didn't get any food here. Let's not worry about having him on the check. I think how this would go down. <laughs> yeah. Is, tell me. Is that because la- the check would come? And we would expect Larry to offer something. Mm. Larry doesn't offer anything. And that's where the, you start to feel uncomfortable. You're like, you know what? I feel like I've been had here because Larry ate like half a case of right. beer and, and half a pitcher of beer <laughs> and, you know, isn't even offering anything. And that's where I would like to have, I think, some guidance. Marianne would like some firm, yeah, would like some guidance. Because the polite Sorry. thing we would feel would be not to say anything and just, and just steam. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Really? Would it be? Is it? Um, if he's not offering. This could ruin my night potentially. Yeah. This would ruin my night. I don't like that advice, you guys. Let's change it. <laughs> Let me try this one out. If I was in this situation, I would kind of assume leadership of the check because I know it would bother me. Okay. And I would judge in my own brain, depending on whether Larry picked over the leftovers or actually had a substantial meal. And I might say, hey, Larry, do you want to just throw in 15 bucks? Yeah. I think that'll cover you. Yes. Is that I okay? I love your idea. Ooh. Okay. I love that idea. Okay. Hey, do you want to just throw in like 10 or 15 since you barely ate anything, but you still did Join us. You're being very patronizing to Brendan right now, Lizzie. <laughs> These compliments. I'm not being patronizing. That was the right answer. Seconded. Meanwhile, I I'm did. sitting over here without any compliments. I'm getting basically none, Rico, the onions none. of the beef stew that is your love. <laughs> I don't feel great about it, but there you go. Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Cheers. Hey, Take care. thank you guys. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Lizzie also co-authored the new 6th edition of Emily Post's Wedding Etiquette. And Rico, it sounds like it's only a matter of time before I pen the first edition of my own etiquette guide. Hmm. I'm guessing it will not have a chapter on gloating. It will not. Okay, (laughs) folks, if you have a question for our etiquette experts or for the celebrities who we occasionally rope into that role, send it to us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, I would guess that when most people talk about great restaurant towns, they do not usually mention Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, maybe sarcastically. That's correct. (laughs) And I can tell you that when I was growing up there in the 80s and the early 90s, that made some sense. The town had lost hundreds of thousands of jobs when the steel industry collapsed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people who stayed tended to be older. They had more conservative tastes. And I remember maybe one Thai restaurant and one sushi joint within city limits. Sounds perfect for our food segment. That's Well, (laughs) the city has revitalized. And in the latest issue of Bon Appetit magazine, their roving restaurant critic, Andrew Knowlton, listed Pittsburgh as the place to eat in 2014. Mm. So over the holidays, I sat down with one of the chefs who made the scene happen, the James Beard Award semifinalist, Kevin Souza. Uh, I met at his flagship restaurant, Salt of the Earth. It's very creative fusion cuisine. But uh-huh. I started by asking him about the food scene of his youth in the McKees Rocks area right outside Pittsburgh. Outside of my family and the few restaurants that we went to, most of which were Italian or good Chinese, there were only a couple, there weren't good contemporary restaurants in Pittsburgh. You so know. where did you first of all get your palate from? I think just growing up, you know, Eastern European and Italian, a Sicilian, um, you know, we ate a lot of funky stuff, a lot of guts, a lot of weird seafood. And so I just think that I developed a, a love of all things 
food. So do you remember the first fine dining experience maybe you had? How old were you? I was probably eight or nine, and it was a restaurant downtown called Frenchie's. And of course, it was a French restaurant, and it was the, that was like we were celebrating something. You know, we ate snails, and um, I don't particularly remember loving it. The level of food that you're doing is kind of way beyond that, and was the kind of thing that I'd never really even seen here before. What made you think that people would you know go for it you know it's I don't know that I'm a great business person because of what I'm about to say but I didn't really care there were a group of chefs and a lot of them I'm friends with now and we've all come up together and ended up opening our own restaurants that were like you know let's do what we want to do and people were more than ready for it but I guess what I'm trying to get at is why do you think people were ready for it because I can guarantee you when I left Pittsburgh people were not ready for it they would have looked at a restaurant like this and thought I don't even know what that is. Well, I, I think that the market was already always here, and we didn't, as restaurateurs, give them enough credit. And I started to see that. I started to see with every little bit that I pushed, every dish that I did that was a little bit further out there, people were flocking to us. And, and crazy things, you know, crazy in the eye of the general, you know, Yinzer, which for those uninitiated, Yinzer is a, a term of endearment for Pittsburgher because instead of saying you guys, some people say Yins. It's still amazing to me. I love it. Yeah. You know, I made a conscious effort when I was a kid to break myself of that accent and I could fall right back into it if I spend five minutes in the Keys Rocks. So, um, but I was tired of every restaurant doing the same dishes. I've been quoted as saying this before. Everyone did a crab cake. Everyone did a filet with asparagus and bernays. And when, when I started to have the control of my own menu, I was like, I'm not doing that here. You know, that was probably 2000, early 2000s. And then it started to build and build and build. And then there were restaurants popping up all over the place. Everyone was doing their own little shtick. And it became like, okay, well, where do I go to get a filet and asparagus and bernays now? Like, you know, and that's a good thing. Actually, let me talk. Let's talk a little bit about the food here. One of the things I liked about this place the first time I came here was that it was really forward thinking, but also still had traces of the old Pittsburgh left in it. Do you remember this dish that used to have halushki in it? The, the kind of Polish cabbage and noodles? Yeah, dish? it was a duck dish and it, and it had like a throwback, you know, egg noodles and cabbage. And there was, I think there was an apple butter element to it as well. A lot of people come in, like my mom came in and I think she ate that dish and she was like, you know, Kev, this isn't really like traditional halushki. And I said, yeah, I know, but... At all. At all. And she loved it. Do you have anything uh, coming up maybe that you might... Uh... It, we don't plan the menus too far in advance. You know, that dish was probably born out of the fact that we had a lot of cabbage. And today I made you a dish that I, I remember you saying that you liked that dish. And I did a duck dish that isn't anything like that. But what makes it super Pittsburghy is the fact that everything on it came from our farm that is an eighth of a mile from here in the hills of Garfield. Before I eat that dish... What's your favorite kind of local uh, ingredient that you happen to use a lot that maybe people don't think of as a Pennsylvania my thing? My favorite ingredient in general are mushrooms. All of the cooks go out and, you know, spend time in the woods. It's my favorite thing to do is go out and spend time in the woods. So when mushrooms are in season in western Pennsylvania, our menu is very mushroom heavy. All right, let me at long last eat this delicious looking thing, which I'm sure is cold now, but is going to be delicious. It should be pretty delicious. So this is a, a local duck breast. We cook it sous vide. And what I did was just take a lot of local vegetables, turnips and Brussels sprouts and carrots, and they're treated in a couple different ways. They're roasted, they're pickled, they're raw. We made sauces out of them. And it's just uh, a really strong representation of what's happening on the farm right now in Pittsburgh. Looks like a work of art. It's very minimalist. Here we go. Oh, man.
That is fantastic. That duck is so tender. All right, I have one last question. Do you remember the moment where you ate somewhere in Pittsburgh, maybe other than your own place, and you thought, okay, this city is happening now? A it great was, it was food town? In the matter of about three months, I ate at three of the best restaurants, and I was like, holy we have a scene and then with all the national media hyping it it's reaching a fever pitch which is a good thing do you worry about that though on on some level you know there's the danger of this place losing its character it becomes like you know a hoity-toity restaurant town there's always that danger you know there was just a a symposium last night a kind of QA downtown with mayor-elect bill peduto and a bunch of other locals about the hipsterization of uh, Pittsburgh. You know, we all worry about that. We pride ourselves on our work ethic and not just the fact that we can go out and buy a flannel and a pair of work boots and look like we work, but we've always kind of been the underdog and we like that. And so the the possibility of not being the underdog... Um, it's scary. It's scary, and it's a, it's a weird proposition, but uh, we'll take it. You know, it, it, there are a lot worse things that can happen than people wanting to move to your city. Pittsburgh chef and restaurateur Kevin Souza. His next restaurant is as much about community building as it is food. It is called Superior Motors, and he'll open it in the severely depressed, nearly barren former steel town of Braddock outside Pittsburgh. This week, the project raised over 300 grand on Kickstarter, more than any restaurant in Kickstarter history. And folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, we talk to Timothy Oliphant, star of the multiple Emmy-nominated crime drama Justified. Speaking of justice, it's only fair to let you know Jackson Musker is the associate producer of the Dinner Party Download. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. James Delahousse is our intern. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. There's once a band called Pavement, whose lackadaisical attitude and postmodern wordplay appealed to a certain type of liberal arts major. You might know the type. Mm. The band broke up, but frontman Stephen Malcolmus keeps making records. His latest is called Wig Out at Jag Bags. Here's a track called Lariat. Bon appétit. Only a chariot could carry it across this void I wouldn't jerry-rig or candy-coat your Latin kisses You're not what you aren't You aren't what you're not That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And Rico, you ate like an eighth of the fried rice and a couple of pot stickers. <sighs> Do you just want to throw in like 10 bucks for lunch? Man. All right. I got to go feed the meter first, though. Wait, there's a meter? <laughs>